0: Good morning again and happy Mother's Day again. I know you guys are just here for cookies, but there is a sermon to get to as well. Uh, in the beginning of Romans 12, Paul begins this section with a powerful exhortation about Christian living. He says, "Offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God in light of his grace and mercy, all that he's done for us in sending Jesus to die, We should be completely devoted to him, completely committed to him. And then in the following verses, he proceeds to tackle three seemingly random, but increasingly challenging topics. First, he says, be committed to the body of Christ. Be committed to each other in spite of your diversity. Love your fellow believers. In the next passage, he talks about our enemies and that even though there are people who will mistreat us and who want to do us harm, people outside of the church, he says, don't pay back their evil with evil, but do good to them. And finally, last week, we talked about this idea of submitting to the ruling authorities of society and humbling ourselves and giving ourselves to their authority. Now, as you think about those three topics, what are the questions that you might have is how do these things fit together? Why these three topics? After telling us, hey, live a life committed to God. Why these things? Is that it? Is there more? Not that there's, these aren't important things to do, not that these aren't important parts of Christian life, but you know, we would admit these aren't exactly the top three things we might think of if somebody asks us, how do I follow Jesus? How do I live a committed life to God? This would be a little bit like if I was giving premarital counseling uh, to a young couple, sitting them down in my office, talking about their future life together. At some point, I decided you know, I'm going to do my pastor thing and address this young groom-to-be. Tell him, hey, you've got to be a good husband. You've got to be completely devoted to your wife. So, listen to her problems always do the dishes and try to spend time with her family those are great ideas i actually think those are really that's really good advice for you future husbands out there but you know you might this young man might think it, so is that it is that what it means to be a good husband is there more And so as we consider that when it comes to these three ideas we've been looking at for the past several weeks, we come to a passage this morning where we see how things come together. We see how these topics connect and why they are so important. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans 13, 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. One of the assumptions of this entire section, Romans 12 to 13, is that there is a new king, a new kingdom, and we should live accordingly. Now let me explain that. One of the things that Paul talks a lot about in his letters, not just in Romans, is this idea that human history can basically be broken down into two eras or two ages. The first is what he calls the present age. Sometimes he calls it the present evil age. And this is the era reigned over by sin and death. Began in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve. You also have the age to come, which is the time when God would restore his kingdom, bring a time of peace, And justice, reconciliation, and restoration. Now to make a very, very long story short, what Paul is reminding us in our passage this morning is that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the present evil age has come to an end. Sin's reign has ended. Death is no longer our master. As we sang in that song, Jesus' blood has broken the chains. He's defeated death and sin. And in some sense, the kingdom of God has arrived through the giving of the Spirit, through the church. God has begun his program of restoration and justice and reconciliation. But at the same time, not completely. This old age hasn't fully ended yet. Sin's influence, death's influence, are still very much felt. And the kingdom hasn't totally arrived yet in full. And so this is what Paul means when he talks about this metaphor of day and night, that, you know, the day has kind of ended, or the night has kind of ended, but not totally. It's still kind of dark outside. The day has begun, but the light isn't fully here. He's speaking of this in-between time that we live in. This is something that scholars call already, but not yet. And that's the era of the Roman church, and it's the era that we still live in now. Uh, You can think about this in terms of like a fairy tale kingdom, right? You have this evil, mean king who rules over the kingdom in this castle up on the hill. And, you know, his kingdom is overrun by these evil, wicked men, like big guys with eye patches and broken teeth and, wooden legs. I guess that's basically pirates, but you know, just just think of like mean evil guys, and there's a lot of, you know, dissension. There's uh, poverty. There's brokenness. This is a bad kingdom. One day, a new king arrives, and he defeats the old king, and he sets him aside, and and the new king sits on the throne, and the moment that king defeats the old king and sits on the throne, his reign, his kingdom has begun, and, and he begins to roll out this program of restoring the kingdom to good. But it's happened, but not totally. Again, already, but not yet. And it's important for us to think about this because Paul wants us to understand that this is our position in the world. This is the reality for us as believers. People who belong to, who are loyal to the new king, And who reject the ways of the old king. That even in this in between space where both have influence, that we choose to be new kingdom people. And in essence, this is kind of what he's saying in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Offer yourself as living sacrifices. He's saying, Be completely devoted to the new king. And when he says, be transformed in the renewing of your mind, not to the pattern of this world, the literal words there are not to the current age or the present age. Don't be trans- conformed to the present age, but be a new kingdom person. And so the implicit question that we've been looking at for the last three or four weeks is, how do we live as new kingdom people? What is the ethic of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be loyal to the new king? What are the values of the people who truly live in his kingdom, live in the light? And so again, we've looked at this kind of interesting mix of exhortations on community, on loving our enemies, on life in the public and political arena. And again, these It might seem kind of like random topics at first, but this morning, Paul brings it all together, and he shows us the connective tissue between all three of these topics. Paul is giving us an ethic for the new kingdom, and it is this, very simply, love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. This is what it means to be loyal to the new king. This is what it means to live in his kingdom. And more important than that, this is what God has always been trying to do from the very beginning with Israel and the law. This is what he's always been working towards is a people devoted to his value system. And first and foremost, this value of love of neighbor. Now, in some sense, for both the Romans and for us, this isn't too surprising. Jesus talked a lot about love in his ministry. It was what he was about. It was how he lived and what he talked about. The early church was built on love for one another, taking care of each other. But at the same time, the fact that Paul talks about it here and in every single one of his letters is a reminder of this inescapable fact that living out this ethic in real life, is not easy. It is not easy to have love of neighbor be a transformative ethic for how we live. Paul knows this. He knows how tempting it could be to give into the old kingdom ethic of self-love, living for our own pleasure, our own advancement, our own gain, living self-focused lives, instead of others' focused lives. He knows that even for a church that embraced this idea, like, yeah, let's love each other, let's do it, Paul, we're in, he knows that it can be easy to kind of wiggle, or it can be easy to kind of wiggle out of a genuine Christ-like love, that we can turn love into kind of a feeling we have, or just, just being nice, not hurting people's feelings. We can turn our neighbor into Only our friends or only other believers or only people who look like us or think like us or do the things that we like. And so what Paul is doing in these chapters in all of Romans 12 and 13 is he's painting a picture of a church transformed by real love in real life. He doesn't want to just give an abstract command, love your neighbor and leave it at that. He wants to look at the nitty-gritty, practical outworking of love in a normal Roman Christian's real life. What love of neighbor actually required of them in the real world. And so again, he looks at church relationships, this reality of loving one another in spite of our differences. Loving people who come from different backgrounds, who have different views on things, different perspectives, different gifts. He moves on to those outside of the church and even our enemies, those who want to mistreat us. And then he looks at just the entire city, this entire space, the the Roman Empire, those who they share their world with. And in each of these contexts, Paul doesn't just say, love these people. He doesn't just say, church, love your neighbor. Everywhere else, love your neighbor. Instead, he shows us what this looks like when it's applied. And I think the principle that we see, before we look at how he does this, the principle that we see is simple, but powerful. And something I think we need to be reminded of as we we think about loving others. And it's that love in real life is being actively committed to the good of others. Love is more than just a positive feeling, it's more than just good intentions, it is an active effort to do good in the lives of our neighbors. Now this is a pretty basic idea, there's obviously more to loving people well than just this. But I think it's an important starting point as we think about whether or not our lives are characterized by love of neighbor, whether or not we are living this large transformative ethic of the kingdom that we are for the the well-being and blessing of others. I think a great word to reference as we think about this idea is this Hebrew concept of shalom. And shalom is a word that represents the ultimate good that God designed for us. When we think about God in creation saying, and it was good, he's thinking of this world of shalom that he's making. Shalom is peace and wholeness. It's being in right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with the world around us. Shalom is an experience of the peace and blessing of the King. And love seeks shalom for others. In fact, love does shalom to others. And so when we go back to these different topics, each of these contexts that Paul brings up, we see a picture of the church doing good, bringing shalom. In the church context, Paul says, let's wait for the helicopter to go by. In the church context, Paul says, You guys may be different, you guys may come from different backgrounds, but here's how you can do good for one another serve each other. Use your gifts, use your time, your energy to lift others up, to build others up, to help others experience God. He moves to the outside world and he says, Hey, there are people who don't like you, people who want to do evil to you. Here's how you respond work for their good, overcome their evil with good. And then he moves to the political arena, and this is a little bit more nuanced. But as Paul talks about submitting to authorities, the assumption that he's making is that these authorities are doing what they're supposed to do, which is working for the common good of society. At its best, any ruler is bringing peace and order and stability to the world around them. And so what he's saying is that even though you honor God as king, you can still submit to these authorities by paying taxes, by obeying their laws, because you are contributing to the larger good of society. By doing these things, by not promoting anarchy or rebellion, you're bringing good to the world around you. And again, implicit in this discussion is that when a earthly ruler stops being for the good of the world around us, That's when the church has to ask new questions. And so anyway, in each of these situations, we see how love of neighbor is played out in real life. And Paul's point isn't that only these three contexts matter, that it only matters that we're loving in church when we have enemies and with politics, but he's simply showing them, hey, these are three areas of your life where loving people, doing good, will be challenging absolutely necessary. And this is the reality of love of neighbor for us as well. It's challenging. And there are parts of our lives where it will be, where it will be hard. In his commentary on Romans, C.B. Cranfield says this. This, I think, speaks to the radical nature of this new ethic. He says, a man has not fulfilled the law by the mere fact that he loves another, someone other than himself. Most surely, do this. He says, just because you love someone doesn't mean you love your neighbor. Everybody loves someone. He continues, fulfillment of the law involves not just loving someone other than oneself, but loving each person whom God presents to us as our neighbor by the circumstance of his being someone who we are in a position to affect for good or ill. The neighbor in the New Testament sense is not someone arbitrarily chosen by us. He is given to us by God. I think about that. That's pretty profound, I think. It's pretty heavy, too. When we ask the question, who is my neighbor? It is whoever we have the opportunity to do good to to bless to bring shalom to. And this is the picture of love that Paul is painting in these chapters. Love seeks the good of others. Not just because they're like us, not just because they are always for us, not just because not because they can always help us, but because we have the opportunity To do good for them. And so just as Paul takes the radical step of applying this idea of doing good, of bringing shalom to these different challenging contexts, we have to do the same in ours. We have to ask, what does love of neighbor look like for me in my real life, in the places where it isn't easy or convenient? Am I for the good of others when I come to church? Am I thinking about this in terms of how I can bless, how I can do good, how I can bring shalom to my community? Do I do this at home, at work, when I play basketball, when I vote, when I hang out with my friends, when I'm at the park with my kids, when I'm biking or hiking or working out? Am I living with the perspective that I can do good to others, that I can love my neighbor in all of these spaces? Not because they are always like me, not because they are always for me, not because they can always help me, but because I can do good. Uh, This past week, I was uh, out for a run in my neighborhood, And one of the things that I've been trying to do for the past couple years is just to be kind of more intentional with that time. And I don't know, this might sound kind of cheesy, but like thinking about how can I be a more loving runner? How can I represent Jesus when I run? And this is not easy when you're running. But at the very least, right, it's just like being friendly. You know, I I try to say hi to everyone that I run by. There's people who are regulars who I've kind of gotten to know and I, I kind of have a good rapport with. The only guy is the guy in the black shirt and the black hat. He always wears sunglasses. He will never look at me, but I'm working on him, too, even though he doesn't seem interested. But, you know, it's a a small step. It's not a big deal, but it's just something I've been thinking about. So anyway, this past week, I was out for a run, and I'm on kind of one of my normal stretches, about a a half-a-mile block between two streetlights. And someone on this stretch had taken all of the trash out of the trash cans and dumped it out on the sidewalk. And there's probably three or four trash cans in this stretch, and so, you know, it's, it's pretty gross. On top of that, this is an area where people like to walk their dogs. So really when I say trash, I mean a bunch of little green bags with you-know-what in them. And so I'm running by, and really just my only thought is, oh, this is so gross, and are like, who would do that? Like why would a person take out this trash, take out this stuff and, and throw it out on the sidewalk, but I kind of went on my way. Now on every run I go by this, this stretch twice and so I came back around about 15 minutes later and it was gone. The, 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 the trash, the, the little bags, they were all gone and I keep running and as I get to the end of the block, I see a middle-aged woman putting all this stuff back in the trash can and I recognized her as, as a woman who just kind of walks in the neighborhood. And she didn't have any gloves on. She didn't have one of those, like, trash picker-upper things. She just clearly was on her walk, picked up the trash, and put it in the trash can. And, you know, I'm thinking about this idea of being loving on my runs. I'm thinking about this sermon. And and it just made me think as I saw her doing this. Now, not to say that she's loving and I'm not, or that I, I don't know why she did what she did. And I didn't feel especially guilty that I hadn't thought to do that. But it did make me think about what it looks like to do good to those around you. And I was just kind of inspired. Because even though this is a a pretty small act, I mean, it probably wasn't small to her, but in in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small thing to pick up trash. I know that I was blessed. I know that it was a good in my life and it was meaningful to my neighborhood. And it just made me think of the way a transformed heart, a heart renewed by this ethic, approaches every moment and every opportunity. That this kingdom ethic should inform everything we do. It obviously applies to helping our friends, serving at church, maybe even praying for our enemies, supporting causes, and policies that make people's lives better. There's all these things we can do. But sometimes, sometimes it's just picking up dog poop on the sidewalk. The call to love your neighbor, it's not a call to love one particular person or in one particular situation. It's not about coming up with a long list of all the things that we always have to do in order to be loving. And I'm certainly not saying that you have to go home and pick up trash every time you see it or else you're not loving. But the point is that this is a call to have your heart and life changed so dramatically that the good and shalom of others becomes the lens through which we view every space, every situation where we find ourselves. And ultimately, we we have to remember that the reason for this, the reason why this is so important, the reason why this is the core ethic of this kingdom, is because this is who God is. This is the way God loves. This is what he showed us that he's about. God has loved us and been for us. From the very beginning, he's been working for our good, working to bring us back into the shalom that he created for us since the very beginning. In fact, he went so far that he sent his son to die on a cross so that we could experience that, so that we could experience this good that we didn't deserve, that we actually reject, over and over again, God says, I love you so much that I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep blessing you with it. I'm going to keep giving you this peace, this life, this hope. And so for us to follow God, for us to be a people who are devoted to him, who live for the things he cares about, is to love as he has loved us, whenever we can with all that we are to whomever we have the opportunity to love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us, for being a God who is defined by love, by shalom, by good. And God, we want to, as your people, as your redeemed people who have been set free from sin, set free from the reign of death, we want to live this ethic that you've invited us to. So God, would you open our eyes? Would you continue this process of transforming our minds would you continue renewing us by your spirit so that in every situation, in every space we find ourselves in, we are looking for new ways to be loving, to do good. And we know that we're imperfect. We know that we're limited. That we can't possibly love everyone the way you love, but we thank you that you are working for the good of those around us and that you want to use us in whatever ways we can possibly help that you want to use us to love. So God, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.